All right, inappropriate Earl guest. I know you think, how could he top Brian E. Thompson, the night slasher from Cobra? I think I have today. Uh, he, this man is definitely the most successful guest I've had on, which is not surprising because most of my other guests were in 80s metal bands and uh, in Stallone movies in the mid 80s. Uh, Stallone's prime, but we'll get into that later. Uh, I, I don't even know where to start with this man's credits. He has more credits than M. Emmett Walsh, uh, which is impressive. Uh, number one comedy albums, voiceover star, TV star, movie star, uh, advocate, uh, PETA uh, against chaining of dogs. I mean, this guy does it all. Please put your hands together, inappropriate our listeners, for the great Patton Oswalt. Hi, inappropriate Earl listeners. <laughs> You've even How you doing? doing? I'm great. I mean, uh, I pre- I don't even know where to start with you. Uh, um, you're in a Weezer video. <laughs> I'm in a. <laughs> yeah, I was in a Weezer video. Um, that was uh, yeah. Uh, got I love the USA. It's 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 weird. I'm I'm calling you from. Uh, I'm at, this is actually very. Uh, this is actually appropriate on the inappropriate real show because I'm calling you from a hotel room, the DoubleTree in Irvine. I'm on the road. I'm starting to do sets to get my new hour together. So I'm sure this background is very, very. This 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 kind of setting, this furniture, and this just this the whole decor is very familiar to you as a touring comic. Well, I don't think you and I play the same venues, so. Uh, well, I mean, I'm at the Irvine Improv. It, it doesn't matter the venue you play. There's not, there aren't different hotels for different levels of show business. Eventually, everyone has to stay in the same hotel on some level or, or another. Which is the amazing thing. I mean, you can yeah. uh, stay in a Four Seasons suite, all the trappings of uh, your success, but you are staying in a hotel nothing against it uh that is uh, a road comics hotel i guess oh yeah i actually kind of dig um road comic hotels because i can get a lot of writing done because there just isn't anything really visually there to take your attention away like sometimes when i'm home and i see all my stuff i will tend to get distracted or go down little rabbit holes but in a room that's as blank as this you just sort of focus on whatever it is you're working on whatever it is you're writing. So I dig, I dig hotels like this. This is a good place to come and write. See, I'm the opposite. I get so bored in a hotel like that that I'll turn on a TV and I'll, I'm a big news junkie and mm-hmm. I'll just fall down the Fox news and MSNBC rabbit holes. Cause I'm mm-hmm. fascinated by how much those two networks hate each other. Uh, yeah, and, and it's it's also amazing how they're both equally designed to keep you watching. Like, like in other words, everyone on those channels could be a good journalist if they did a weekly show. But the fact that they have to do a nightly show means they have to keep drumming up interest. And I think that's what is making the news so bad is like, – like, it's why – like John Oliver's show is actually kind of useful because he just works for a week on one thing, whereas someone like a Maddow or a um, Hannity, they've got to keep you tuning in every night like, oh, and, and they have to make the world seem way crazier than it is. Um, but it, it's also weirdly addictive and comforting to see that the world is horrible because then you can justify, well, it's good that I'm just staying inside and not doing anything because everything's on fire out there. Well, <laughs> 
I liken it to almost pro wrestling, which I'm a big fan of still. I mean, we're the same age. I'm actually, I think, five months older than you. So Whoa. I should have followed your uh, work <laughs> habits a little better. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, it's I watch Maddow and, and she's anti Hannity, blah, blah, blah. And then mm-hmm. Hannity's anti Maddow. And it's. Right. I don't know if I should be as entertained as I am watching it. I feel bad. And then I watch CNN out of pity almost just because no one watches them. Yeah. Do you feel I, I always have this? This is me being paranoid. I always feel like after hours, there's some cable news journalist bar where Hannity and Maddow and O'Donnell and everyone just gets together and they just like, so what are you going to be talking about tomorrow? Well, I'm going to say that you guys are a bunch of neo-fascist okay yeah then i'll counter with like like it, it's the same like if you watch that documentary off um on the mat when they show the wrestlers like talking backstage like well i'm gonna come at you with the elbow okay yeah, that's good i'll go back like it fe- sometimes it feels like it's a little mapped out yeah no i'm a big hockey fan and uh i know that most of the tough guys the fighters uh, of course there's not that many anymore because mm-hmm. that part of the game uh I think was frowned upon by the league <laughs> to have these one dimensional gorillas just out there to pick a fight. But yeah, all those guys were friends off the ice. So yeah. uh, and the, the bad guys and the, the good guys in wrestling, I, I think same thing. Most are friends. So I do often wonder if Hannity and Maddow are dating, uh, even though I know uh, they, there's just such a sexual tension between those two. And I know that, um, she's uh, into girls, uh, and you know I don't know what Hannity's into. I don't want to know, but I, I can't imagine like he Hannity looks like such a badly drawn cartoon of a handsome guy. Like it's like if you were drawing a handsome guy, but on like a children's menu at Shoney's, so you <laughs> like you would amplify everything so that it actually looks kind of gross. That's what he looks like. He looks like a very young Vince McMahon, or not very, but a younger version of Vince McMahon. Uh, who, 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 did, who does not work out. Right. All, the, all the lines are like soft and kind of, you know, kind of rubbed raw and, and just, ugh, oh, God, it's such a bummer. Do you Now, I don't follow wrestling as much as other people, but in the wrestling world, is it more profitable to be a villain than to be a good guy? Like what, what do you if, – if you want to have a – a wrestling career do you try to angle to be a villain or what i think um i personally would but um yeah i think it depends on who you are i, I think good guys get um a shorter shelf life mm-hmm. get bored of them um oh okay like a john cena uh, i now we're doing a deep dive into pro wrestling which was not my intention as you can see Patton, i don't plan questions i just let it roll um dude this is i like talking like this is what this is what comedians on the road are like you just you have four hours in between when you're driving and you just let yourself let let's see where this conversation goes it's actually kind of fascinating you know well i just figure with someone like you and i'm not trying to kiss your ass but i mean the reality is uh they call me honest earl you done a lot i'm sure you're sick of answering the same questions tell us about what it was like on seinfeld or you know so i try and uh humanize people uh and and, you know uh so here we are talking about pro wrestling villains Uh, (laughs) i was fascinated by uh wrestling as a child because i thought it was real i mean uh yeah i think well i've said this before it's scripted 
but it's scripted mayhem. In other words, when they write into the script that you're going to fall 40 feet onto a table full of light bulbs, yes, they know they're going to do that, but they do have to do it. Like the damage you see them taking is very, very real. So it's like watching a Jackie Chan film where you're like, you could argue, well, Jackie Chan isn't real. Well, it's scripted, but he he's doing all that stuff. He's almost dying constantly. Like that's, I think, part of the adrenaline thrill. And it feels like it's part of the adrenaline thrill for the, the guys that do it. I think that there are certain people, astronauts and heart surgeons, that they need to operate at a certain level of adrenaline spike in order to be calm in their daily lives. And that's what they're, that's, people are drawn to that. And it's actually kind of interesting just to, when you see that. It's a very fine line between being a psychopath and being an adrenaline junkie just depends on where you aim it. Well, and it's also, I liken it to stand-up comedy. Uh, it's like the stand-up comics lifestyle, but with working out. Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. It is. It's stand-up comic hours, but with way more working out. Yeah, and <laughs> growth hormone and other things. Yeah. Which is why Although, so, so many of them die at a young age. Uh, you know, I, Well, I, a lot of times... They, they die, obviously, because they're taking physical risk, but because – and I have a friend who is really into MMA and there's a lot of roid use in MMA, not to build up muscle, but to recover from injury afterwards so you can keep fighting because there's no money coming in unless you're able to do fights and you're on this punishing schedule that you shouldn't be on and the the, the steroids give you a longer career and help you make more money. That's the only way you can survive. Oh yeah, I mean the uh, probably the first celebrity guest I had on this podcast was Don Fry, who uh, oh really, who acts as well. He's pretty funny actually. Uh, I think Rob Schneider put him in a few of his films, mm -hmm. uh, and when he uh, came over, he was limping, and uh, oh. and when he left, I had to help him up, and like I started crying because I'm like I get emotional about stuff like that. Uh, oh, man, he's a hero of mine. And, you know, he found the UFC when there was like no rules. like Right. And, and it was also like before they knew. <clears throat> I mean, again, I still think I would assume that steroids are still dangerous, but they were they're They're used in maybe a slightly smarter way now than they were back then. I mean, back then it feels like they, they were all making it up as they went along. So there was a lot of damage from those early it's like it's like when you talk to early you know those interviews with early football players when they didn't have the protective it's still horrible what happens to football players now there's no way to protect against that but really like the the brutality of it must have been must have been unimaginable oh i mean i'm a pittsburgh steeler fan uh just because my uh, father was friends with the owner and so every year we'd get a game used super bowl ball that they would you know autograph by the whole wow team. And I would play with it like those balls got to be worth a hundred grand each right now, but um, <laughs> lost them all. But I can't imagine the steroids that those guys, I think you're right. They were very, uh, well, what's this? Let's just take it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Look, if, if it'll stop my pain so I can play tomorrow, I'll take this. I mean, I, mean, I think it literally just came down to that. Like, let's just get me through each day. Did you see that? documentary about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson where near the end of Larry Bird's career they had to bring in like a chiropractor just to basically get his back like back in place before each game he had so racked his spine out because he would just play like it was always his last game and they would show these huge like attempts at saves you would crash on the ground and slide like it was just insane 
I can't imagine what, you know, I play a little bit of hockey just to have, I have to have one, I don't know about you, but I have to have one non comedy thing I do to. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Keep me from uh, being insane. I mean, this business, right. I think even at your level, it, it, any level is uh, not all people are cool in our business. <laughs> So. Wait, wait a minute, Earl. You're blowing my mind here. Go, well, go down that road. What? Not all people are cool in this biz. Wait a minute. I mean, it shouldn't be that way. Like, no. Uh, I, I was on the Comedy Central show Roast Battle, which was competitive roasting. And oh, I, I was one of the the judges on it. I, I was on season one. I don't think they could afford you on season one. So. <laughs> But I thought this is the greatest moment of my life. It's my first time on TV. This should be yeah. like I should be I should be crying. I should be so happy. And it was a miserable experience. Oh, dude! Uh, it was like, oh, this business sucks uh, in some way. Yeah. Uh, well, the business sucks depending on who you decide to hang out with. You, there's, I mean, there are people that you can hang out with that they are very competitive and they're insecure, and you can tell that. Wait a minute! You forgot. I think somewhere along you forgot the you, you forgot the fact. I think Lori Kilmartin points this out. If you're just making the the minimal survival money as a comedian, you have won. You won. You don't have to work in an office. You don't have to work for someone else. It's your thing. And then everything from that point on is gravy. And then I know people that look. I'm not going to name names. I know people that have gotten like like their own sitcom and they're miserable. You know, they're, they're never happy. There's nothing that will fill that void. So just you just figure out who your crew is and you hang around with the right, right people. This is a really, really fun business. No, no, it, it is. And I, I don't want to be too negative. But, and, no, yeah. And tr trust me, I've been around the negativity. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, I'm tempted to name names, but I won't. Uh, <laughs> well, it's just it, – I mean, I, I'm not – <laughs> I don't want to say it in a hateful way. I, I'm, I feel like bad. I, I actually feel bad for them because like you are actually talented and you're so miserable. Shouldn't you be happy that you get to do this? This yeah. is awesome. You know, like, why aren't you happy? That's how I operate. Uh, but, yeah. uh, you know, I've met some cool people too. And like, you've been amazing to me. You know, I'm sure it was weird to get a, uh, an interview request from some guy you've never met before. Hey, come over to my house. Uh, <laughs> uh, that could have been a class. That could have been a classic me walking in like Joe Pesci at the end of Goodfellas. I'm like, yeah. there's no recording equipment. I'm like, Oh no. Bang. So <laughs> yeah, God knows what it was going to be. And this is pre pandemic. I asked you. And I'm sure like, I know, I know God, it took so long. My schedule's so nuts, but that's great. Mm. But that's why I know you're like, you did this like, OK, he's got to be a good guy. Like, I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. I get told no a lot. Uh, oh, man. It's all good. John Saxon from Enter the Dragon told me I don't have the time. I'm like, uh, you haven't been in anything since Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, John. Oh, man. Which was one of my favorite is is one of my favorite movies, Enter the Dragon. So, yeah. You know, <clears throat> the coolest guy in that movie. And then that kind of. Um, but then the bad guy from Cobra said yes. So there you go. It's weird that I did a thing with uh, that actor Adrian Pazdar, who was um, he's been in everything. He was in um, uh, Heroes and Prophet back in the day. And he said when he first moved to L.A., 
he had this really surreal moment. He moved into the apartment that they shot inside for the movie Cobra. He was living in that apartment that Stallone is living in, in that movie. And he said one night he was out, he was either working late or something. And it was like two in the morning and he came home and the, He had the TV on, but he was like lying on the couch, like half awake and half asleep. And the way he was lying, he was looking at his front door at the same angle in the scene of Cobra when Stallone comes in. And that movie was on TV. So he's half awake, kind of dreaming. And on TV, he sees his apartment and he's looking at the same thing he's looking at in real life. And then on the TV, Stallone comes in, which he then – in his mind, Stallone was actually coming into his apartment and he was like freaking – he goes, it was one of the most surreal moments I've ever had in my life where the inside of that – he lived in that apartment for a while. That was the greatest product placement uh, movie ever where the big oh. Pepsi sign and, and then in the supermarket Damn. scene where he kills the bad guy. He drinks a quart quiet. <laughs> and then there's a Pepsi machine behind the court. I mean, but, you know, it was the mid-80s, like – that's how you, you you have to that's how you made movies i just love the fact that i will um i will never get over the fact that you know there's the famous mistake when he rips the guy's shirt and you see his mic taped to his chest right. his lavalier mic is taped to his chest but then they cut to another angle which means they did a different setup and the shirt is still open and the mic is still there so they somehow didn't catch that his mic is taped to his chest through a different setup. Like you think they would go, oh, hey, let's move your mic. They just didn't do it. That's just, that is such, it's such an aggressive mistake to make. I think all the budget went to Stallone's salary. So, uh, <clears throat> you know, they probably yeah, exactly. reshoot. I mean, cause since we're the same age, like I really, like I showed my fiance Cobra the other, or a couple of weeks ago. And I'm not saying she was bored by it, but I could tell she was like, Where's the CGI? Where where's Vin Diesel flying in? <laughs> like where are the wacky car? I mean, even though there's a great car chase in that movie, uh, right? Uh, I think kids today are bored by the action. The movie kids behind. today. I, I gotta say, I am so thrilled when I go see an older movie, even from the seventies and eighties, where there are stunts, and you're like, oh, they actually had to figure out how to do that. Like Steven Spielberg's first movie, The Sugarland. Express. It's a fun chase movie with Goldie Hawn and William Atherton. But there's a scene at the end where there's a crash and there's a news guy on top of a van and a car hits the van. And this dude, it's a stuntman, obviously, but he's on top of a van and a car smashes into this thing. And this dude goes flying and there's no way you're watching it going, well, that guy broke a leg or some. There's no way he didn't get hurt. And they just that's what they they just filmed it. They just filmed a guy. It's like professional wrestling. We're going to crash a car into this van and you're going to go flying off. He's like, that's my job. Okay. And and it's kind of stunning to see that now, that complete lack of any kind of safety or anything. Well, it's like when I saw Creed 2, which was basically um, not a sequel to Rocky IV. Yes, yes, it was. You know, in in a weird way, like – Creed 2 was like watching a video game to me. It, right. I didn't really like it. Uh, yeah. You know, big, big fan of the Rocky series, except for Rocky yeah. 5. They, they lost me on that one. But uh, Tommy Morrison, just, when he's the second lead in the film, it's... it's, uh, it's, it's <laughs> but that's, you know, that era is like, hey, let's put a guy as the second lead who's never acted before. <laughs> Look, it's still, Stallone will get the people in. That's all they want to see. It doesn't matter who else we have in there. That's fine. 
Oh, I'm such a Stallone fan. Like, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm a fan of longevity in this business. Like, oh yeah. Like, we probably both know the comics, actors, music, certainly '80s metal bands that we love. One album and done. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, there's that actor. Uh, the, the, they needed a uh, new Stallone, a new Schwarzenegger, a new Van Damme, so they gave that karate expert uh, Jeff Speakman the movie. And the that's movie. right. Jeff Speakman didn't he do like Kempo or something? Or he had yeah. this some kind of oh god. He never acted before. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Uh, give it to him. I think that was I don't know how to say her name from Law and Order. Martiska Hardigay. Uh, Mar- Martiska Hargitay. Mar- okay, I knew I was butchering the name. But I was Something like that. Every episode. That was I think her first role ever was in The Perfect Weapon. Really. Yeah, yeah, she was Jane Mansfield's daughter in, yeah, in the Jeff Speakman movie. Jane Mansfield used to live uh, down the street from me uh, in Bel Air when I was a little baby. And uh, wow, the guy who used to, uh, I guess you'd call him a, a caretaker, who would always walk me by the house and try and look at her nude sunbathing. So that was <laughs> lovely to know that I was being raised by a creep. But, there you go. <laughs> Now let's get to your stand-up because that's oh what, god yes oh no that's what you're up to now yes I mean uh, four number one albums that's six we're the same age you have six albums out I've got a, a ten minute uh, clip on YouTube out so. <laughs> hey that's it you know what that's where you build your foundation buddy that's where you build it up Earl well at fifty two I don't think new face <laughs> is calling me but. Uh, <laughs> They better put in another another category, middle aged yeah. uh, for the new face. You got to have at least four Netflix specials to get new faces. You know that, right? Uh, I didn't, so I'll just concentrate on other. Uh, <laughs> maybe the Dirty Show at two in the morning. Uh, oh, there you go. Um, now your stand-up is the subjects are broad, uh, and what you talk about eighties metal. Okay. Yes. Uh, what got you into, uh, I mean, we grew up in that era, but were you just attracted to the same things I was, just the, the entertainment value of the music? Yeah, I was I was attracted to the spectacle of it. And if I'm watching MTV, I don't want some uh, artistic, uh, spare, sparse, existential video. I want fog machines. I want demons and blood and, you know... Uh, so a lot of the the hair metal videos, even though I wasn't the biggest hair metal fan, the the level of filmmaking and imagination, and you could feel, you could almost reverse engineer what the first meeting for that video was. And they would go, "It's gonna, you're gonna come out of a coffin, and then there's gonna be like a woman chained up, and then you're gonna break the chains with the guitar." And the guy's like, "Yeah, like the more stuff we can throw in here, the better." They just they love that, you know. That sounds. I, like I just I love seeing that. Sounds like the Dawkins video, Breaking the Change. You literally just described it. Uh, That's exa- yeah, it was. there was a lot of like, you know, changing the physical properties of things with rocking. And there was also a lot of rough drafts of Lord of the Rings um, where they would try to do like, you know, a, a some kind of weird um, knights and dragons and castles. And then it was actually kind of cool when that 
stuff would start to bleed over into the more adult contemporary stuff where you could like REO Speedwagon did that band, that song One Lonely Night. And it's all about a night that gets sent through time into into Times Square by a wizard. But, but it was clearly that the director's like, look, the kids love this hair metal stuff. You got to do like a hair metal thing. And these poor stadium rockers in the 70s like, I guess. I, OK, like they're they're so not comfortable doing what they're doing. It's such an entertaining video to watch. Well, I always found it funny when the next trend is coming on board, like, you know, when disco was getting big, Kiss put out a Kiss is the biggest offender of them all. Like They, <laughs> they would put out a polka album if that uh, was the new genre. Yeah, but you know what? There's something I kind of, again, you talk about longevity and being a survivor. Part of being in the industry is they didn't know if disco was going to be the thing or not, and you have to survive. And on a lot of levels at the time, a lot of the stadium rock was getting kind of boring, and the good disco at least was really new beats, really exciting musicianship. This the the um the the guys in Chic were that that band was amazing. That the level of of instrumentality that they had. So these metal guys are all into shredding. We're like, well, I'm seeing just, it's a, it's, it's that level of musicianship being put towards dancing and clubs and, and Coke. And, um, at the time, I'm sure that kiss was like, uh, we got to fuel our jet guys. We, this, this jet doesn't fuel itself. So let's do a disco song. <laughs> you know, funny. You uh, mentioned Sheik. I'm a big fan of their drummer, uh, Tony Thompson. Who- oh man. Amazing who was going to be the drummer in the Led Zeppelin reunion. So he was very versatile. Uh, all those, all those again. And again, just like every, every other genre of music, there was a lot of disco where people got lazy and they used the same pre-programmed beat. But if you listen to the Saturday night fever album, every one of those songs is completely original. That's, that was when, um, Barry Gibb was like, I can literally throw songs away. I don't even know what to do anymore. Like here, 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 take it, you know, and Lionel Richie literally w- when he wrote lady and brought it to the Commodores are like, we got enough ballads, dude, we're fine to sell it. And he called up Kenny Rogers and went, Hey, you want a number one record? And he goes, yeah, sure. Boom. And like that, that was, that was the level that they were operating at at that point. A lot of it had to do with cocaine, but it is, you know, it's, that was part, that was what was going on. So. Well, I just love Kiss because then when disco was fading out and the cars, who I love the cars, the, like they were just. Oh, my God. You know, the Kiss puts out a Cars album, basically. And then Pink Floyd was big and Kiss was like, well, we got to have a concept album. And it was- That's right. But but there's something there's something so charming and spinal tapish about that where they're just openly like. There was a point where they were the vanguard. They had made up something new, but then that doesn't last. And they just very openly were like, all right, what's popular? We'll do it. And so that I don't know. There's something so sweet and, and real about that to me. I kind of dig it. it. That doesn't really bother me. I don't know why. It's it's that longevity, that survivor stuff, man. I don't oh, I know. Love it. I mean, even in uh, 94, when grunge was at its ultimate peak, <laughs> Kiss put out a grunge album. Like, of course they did. No, it was called Carnival of Souls. And it was when I first heard it, I remember the, the only I have this memory that the lead uh, single was a song called Jungle. And I'm like, this is a great Stone Temple Pilot song. And my buddy was like, this is Kiss. I'm like, oh, <laughs> they are out of control. 
Yeah, it's and 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 for what I've heard from people that have met him, like Paul Stanley is like the nicest guy on the planet, like genuinely one of the nicest people. And Gene Simmons is a demon, is an actual demon in human flesh, and they complement each other perfectly. I mean, I met Gene a few times, and I, I must say, within two minutes of meeting him, he was trying to sell me a Kiss credit card. <laughs> yes. And hell yes. But he was, he's like, hey, Earl, you look like, he's had a nice leather jacket on or something. He's mm-hmm. like, hey, uh, you should buy your next leather jacket with one of these. And like, God. He, I mean, but again, there's something, and his son is amazing. His son, um, Nick. Nick, is so cool. Did you see that? He wrote this amazing op-ed piece, or it was an essay in something. It was called, My Dad's an Asshole and So Is Yours. And it, But it was this really cool thing of like wrestling with his dad's, image and behavior and legacy and it was so wise and loving and brilliant i was like this dude should be writing books he's such a good writer he's like smart as fuck yeah. I was, yeah, no, he came uh, to the comedy store once and he he, he looked so much like his dad it's frightening yeah no, yeah i just did all kiss material and it was not com- i'm a huge kiss fan but it was not complimentary toward kiss because you know you got to sell out <laughs> You know, I was basically the gist of my set was Kiss does everything humanly possible to distract you from how bad their music is with the bombs and the explosions and, you know, the guitars blowing up and the laser shooting out of, you know, and now they've turned into the Jewish Menudo with switching guys out in and, you know, and I apologized to him. I'm like, hey, man, I, you know, I'm a huge fan. And he's like, I agree with everything you said, bro. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I I guarantee you every Kiss fan would agree with everything you said, and but they're like, all that's true, and I still love them. I don't care. It's like, you know, there are certain things, um, you know, I think Nick Cage is a lunatic, but I will go see every one of his films because he is always doing something so absolutely original, even if it's wrong. It's like seeing that constantly shoving all of your chips on one square and spinning the wheel to do that for that length of time that he has in his career is astounding. Oh, it's astounding. absolutely right. I mean, Nick Cage is probably like the kiss of actors. Like, <laughs> Oh my God, that's a great, he's the kiss of actors. No, I mean, I, and that's a compliment. Like I, it I, is, that's, it's absolutely a compliment. You know, I remember his first film, uh, Valley girl, which, uh, oh God, it's so good. Know, a child of the eighties. Um, it, it's, it's the quintessential uh, teen angst uh, film. And uh, by the way, the lead way better than way better and more accurate than anything John Hughes ever did. And I like John Hughes, but Valley girl, it really nails what it's like to be a teenager and the, and the giving into like peer pressure and stuff like that. And I really love the scene with Colleen Camp and Frederick Forrest. They're these older hippies that run the health food store and they're having this existential crisis because their daughter's out too late and they're realizing, oh no, we're becoming the parents who want like, no, we're not, we're, we're supposed to be the rebel. That was such an amazing scene. I just remember she's rubbing Frederick Forrest's shoulders and he's like, hi, and he's like, hey, what is this, Bangkok? I don't need a massage. It's just like... <laughs> I went to high yeah. school out in the valley, so that I I got the valley. That some of the oh, references yeah. from people who like lived in Virginia or back east, they might not have gotten the nuances of the, the valley speak. Uh, 
But uh, yeah, I love that movie. And I, I will say the one John Hughes movie I love, and it's probably his least successful movie, was Some Kind of Wonderful, uh, which was... Yeah. Uh, it just didn't do as well for whatever reason. Maybe people just right. that. Like, like we get a teenager's have problems, but uh, you know, if you grew up in the mid to late '80s, I think uh, they really nailed the characters in terms of you know, yeah. Craig, Craig Sheffer is like someone who I'll always go. Why wasn't this guy bigger? Like uh, he was. A- yeah, yeah, so good. Well, some kind of wonderful to me felt like an apology for Pretty in Pink, where. Wow. He was like, I'm sorry that she didn't end up with Ducky. Here's the one I wanted to do. But the problem with it's kind of wonderful is it's that it's that teen dilemma that you and I can totally relate to. I have to choose between this scorchingly hot girl and this other scorchingly hot girl. Like it's this thing of like, I want to be with Leah Thompson. You can't. You'll have to be with um, Mary Elizabeth. Oh, you know what? Perfect. Like the the the, the girl that he ends up with is Stunning, like it's so gorgeous. You're like, I don't. What is the conflict here? Oh, she was is beautiful. I've seen her. Uh, I think she's done a few Law and Orders and stuff like that. And like, you instantly know. Oh my God, that's that sticks from some kind of wonderful. Exactly, like, Mary Stuart Masterson. She was so and still is so gorgeous. And Leah Thompson was gorgeous. And like, the thing with John Cryer, who was also very handsome, but he he was goofy. And it's like, oh no, it's his personality that makes him attractive. Right. Do you know what I mean? And so that's what she's got to decide between. And that's why I think the end of Pretty in Pink is so unsatisfying. Like what he looks over at the, the blonde girl just looks at him and goes, hey. And then, OK, what, so like John Hughes literally just throws a blonde girl at him at the end. Like, sorry about that. Here's a hot blonde. Right. Well, it was the 80s. So uh, it was the 80s. I mean, the 80s. And it's also this, this you see. um a uh, young Andrew Dice Clay, who, um, despite what he went through as a comedian, he was always and still is an amazing actor. You oh, know, I, I think that became. I knew him as the guy from Crime Story, the Michael Mann. Uh, wow, he was great in that. So when I saw him at the Wiltern, uh, I think around '88, uh, mm-hmm. like. I didn't know who he was as a comic. I was like, oh, my God, that's Max Goldman from Crime Story. And Right, right. People were like, what the hell are you talking about? Because uh, uh, yeah. Crime Story is probably my favorite. I'm a big Miami Vice man. Uh, mm-hmm. So in uh, Crime Story, was like, I guess you'd say the bastard son of Miami Vice. Because uh, it was his Michael Mann's next project. And I think it was just too expensive to make because it was a, a period piece. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, Dennis Farina and, and all these great people were in it. Come on. A little runaway in the, for the theme. Come on, man. Oh, I mean, finally got Dale Shannon some some cash, uh, 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a little too late, but they tried. I mean, I'm sure he got uh, screwed over in the original. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, uh, I know. I think pe- some people's first, some people's first, albums are their most successful and of course as you know they probably signed their soul away to just get the album out and and, exactly you know so you think wow dale shannon must be a bazillionaire from that song and he probably (laughs) signed over the rights to uh irving azoff or someone right that's what always cracked me up about when everyone was um talking about oh john travolta finally has a comeback when he did pulp fiction and and i was like 
John Travolta is terrific, but this is not a comeback for him. You have to understand when he did Saturday Night Fever, he said, you don't need to pay me. Just give me a cut of this soundtrack. And when he did Grease, he went, you don't need to pay me. Give me a cut of this soundtrack. So the dude's been a billionaire for years. Like he just did that as a lark. (laughs) So it was it wasn't it was a comeback in terms as an actor, but he could never act again. And and he has more money than he'll ever be able to spend. Well, I hope he didn't have that deal for staying alive because. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I'll trade you my soundtrack stakes in Saturday Night Fever and Grease for a big piece of this Staying Alive album. Come on, man. Frank Stallone, take oh, me to it. Jupiter. I'm a big fan of Frank Stallone. Like, that's. <laughs> I have a weird admiration for people. Like, I can only imagine how hard it must be because he is a uh-huh. serious actor and musician. He was, he was great in Barfly. Yeah. And it's like, what do you do when your brother basically is maybe arguably the most successful actor and maybe of all time in terms of uh, monies his movies have made? And then yeah. you're lucky for you know, an extra part in Rocky too, singing by the fire. It's so weird. Have you, have you seen the original Rocky anytime recently? Have you watched it again? I watch it when I get, you know, I probably suffer from depression in some degree. Uh, I watch that movie when I'm down and out. Uh, Yeah. Like, man, this business sucks. I'm going to turn on Rocky. And that movie was so, is so well-written and it really, you forget that, when he wants to, Stallone's a really good writer. But but again, some people, and we're all in danger of this, sometimes you get consumed by the image that you create. And I think that kind of happened with him in the 80s with all the action movies and stuff. But if you rewatch Rocky, it is a absolutely brilliant performance. And he's performing stuff that he wrote. And the dialogue is per- like he's such a good writer. He's such a good writer. And, and and so it was almost like I remember remember he made that movie Copland in the in the nineties. Um and and the, the big deal was Stallone got fat. He let himself get fat for this role. In the movie, he looks like a normal man his age. He doesn't get fat. He actually looks like the way he should have aged, where he, where he still looks great. And then he's like, and then after the movie, I got myself back down to my thirty inch waist. It's like you shouldn't have a thirty inch waist in your in your early sixties. You should actually let yourself. You'd be this amazing character actor. Stop with all the growth hormones because you look weird. But in Copland, he looks fantastic. Oh, I thought he held his own, and and if you look at that cast, you have Robert. Oh my Trump, God, he's amazing. Uh, Ray Liotta, uh, Michael Rappaport. I mean, all these great actors. Uh, and I thought, I, I'll be honest with you, I thought Stallone had the best performance in the movie in terms of, you know, and this is another, I have a weird way of complimenting people, and I mean this as a complete compliment. <laughs> Stallone is great at playing these dim-witted. Yeah. Like, Rocky was maybe not the brightest character. Uh, mm-hmm. Even Rambo uh, was, and I'm really just talking about the first Rambo. He lost me with he, some of the other yeah. ones. Uh, then he became a, the first Rambo, just like the first Die Hard, he's a real person, and then they just become superheroes. Like, they stop yeah. being people. I mean, that you know? first Rambo was, and I'm a big fan of, like, the stories behind the movies. Like, uh, yeah. Apparently nobody wanted Rambo made. It's like, dude, no one wants to see a, a two-hour movie about a Vietnam vet who's lost his mind. It's just, it's not going to get people into theaters. Right, um, right. Stallone was like, 
it is i'm rocky we're making this movie um, yeah yeah and you know well the, the novel that again that shows you what a good writer stallone is because the novel by david morrill is so dark it's even darker than the movie and for but stallone to read that and go oh i see where the character is here i see what this is again that's just that's really good instincts and i still cry or well up you know, that one scene early on in the movie where he goes to the black lady's home oh, and she's yeah. doing the laundry and there's this great interaction. And you really believe you're watching a documentary more than a movie. Of, yeah. So I'm here for Delmore. Of course, I remember the guy's name. Uh, <laughs> and she, now this is why I haven't made it, because I can remember a side character in the movie. From Dude, that's, are you kidding? That's my whole brain. I remember the most useless, not going to help me at all in anything trivia of everything. It, you Go fucking go off. I, I, and she's like, Delmore is not here anymore. And Stallone was just like, where is he? Uh, you know, there's like, it's a great, like, acting that uh, he's gone and yeah and, and then you know and the cast in rambo the first rambo was oh, Caruso and brian dennehy and, my god and by the way what was the body count in the first rambo i mean well not, not that many to me i think well, what was i can tell you what the body count was one there's yeah. one death and it's an accident um, that the, and Stallone even says, you're the one who made this happen. I didn't want this guy dead. You pushed it. This was an accident because you're making your guys come after me and they shouldn't be. Remember, he confronts Dennehy and's like, all you guys got to do is walk away. And that that death is not on me. I didn't want to kill that guy. He does everything he can not to kill anyone in that movie, which yeah. makes it so amazing. Because what, 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 what makes it more tense is when it, when you have a character that like I can kill anyone I want, and then he's trying not to, that actually ratchet up the tension. You're like, oh my god, this is amazing. Was there's that also that one scene where Richard Crenna is explaining to Brian Dennehy, uh, you know, about how tough he is, Rambo is, and he can <clears throat> make a Billy, a Billy Goat puke, and <laughs> he can kill every single one of your men <laughs> with his bare hands, and he. Yeah. Built Rambo up as like this, you know, monster, uh, and you know, and Die Hard, the same thing. You mentioned Die Hard, like that. I re I really wish some of these film franchises would stop after the first one. And I know that's not, you know, oh. like Fast and Furious. I get why there why there's twelve of them. Like they make mm -hmm. money, but like some of those last few Die Hards. Oh. Well, what's weird about Die Hard is. Only except for um, a good day to die hard. Every die hard sequel was not a die hard script. It was written for another character, and they went, "Oh, make this a John McClane movie," which is how a lot of movies end up happening. A lot of sequels are we had the script floating around. What can we do with it? Let's make this. Oh, you know, there's this other franchise. Let's make this. Tears of the Sun started off as a die hard movie supposed to be John McClane in a jungle and they realized that's ridiculous so they made it a different movie so Tears of the Sun was a written as a Die Hard sequel became something else all the other ones Die Hard 2 Die Hard 3 Die Hard with a Vengeance those were all different movies Die Hard with a Vengeance was a movie called Simon Says right and then they changed it to a Die Hard movie but you know why they make all these sequels the great Sylvester Stallone explained this in an interview I'll never forget this he's like because they were saying you, there was a great interview he gave. Where he was so open about. He goes, "Oh God, I've made so many shitty movies." Like, you know, and he goes, "Here's why: 
Because when you make a successful movie in Hollywood, that is like – that's the equivalent of <clears throat> you get dressed for the prom in a closet with the lights off. You don't know what you're putting on and then you pop out and you hope you look good. And if you do it and you look good, everyone's like, oh, fuck, do that again because usually it doesn't go right. Usually movies do not work. So if you get one that works – then they want you to keep doing that because they because it's a it's a, essentially it's a money business and they're going to insist on that. So the so the that was the analogy he uses when you make a movie you you're getting dressed for the prom in a closet. You don't know what you're putting on. And I just I love that idea. He goes and that's why sequels get made all the time. Oh, I get it the the money machine like Oh yeah. Uh, but I also like sticking on the Stallone uh, subject like I love Nighthawks. Uh, oh, God. So good. Uh, but it's almost, to me, hasn't been ruined by, you know, Nighthawks 2, the redemption. Nighthawks yes. 2, uh, you know, Rutger Hauer, uh, Wolfgar's Revenge. And, like, <laughs> you know, because it's all we have is just that one movie. And, and yeah. Um, you know, after reading Rutger Hauer's biography, uh, I guess he hated Stallone, so it showed up. Oh, no. Well, apparently in the, once again, if I all this under useless information, um, mm -hmm. and I'm an idiot because I always thought films were shot in sequence. So I'm, not, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm embarrassed to tell you that, but for the longest time, I thought they started with the first scene and then just went. Oh, my like, God. That's a rare thing. that It happens, but very rarely. So... In uh, Nighthawks, the first scene they filmed was the, the final scene where Stallone in drag, which was quite the sight. He was ahead of his time. Uh, come on, man. He uh, kills Rutger Hauer when he breaks oh, yeah. the house. And yeah. apparently uh, when he shot Rutger Hauer, the, there was a, I guess a, uh, a cable that was going to pull Rutger Hauer back. You know, so mm -hmm. it looked like he actually got shot. And the Oh, yeah, yeah. The tension level on this was supposed to be at a two or a three. Oh. Stallone says right before they shot the scene to the stunt guy, hey, crank it to 10. <laughs> so if you watch <laughs> that scene, it really does look like Rutger Hauer got shot because his uh, the surprise on his face was like, hey, man, it's supposed right. to be two. Uh, so yeah. I guess the rest of the film, Rutger Hauer was like, I'm going to outrun him in every chase scene. I'm going to upstage him in any way I can because I'm younger and faster and I don't yeah. know, more in shape. But uh, and, but so it almost worked in the film because you could tell there's a tension between them. And uh, Well, good. Yeah. I mean, look, young Rutger Hauer was was ridiculously good looking, like almost cartoonishly good looking. Yeah. So. He was clearly using that. And that kind of, yeah, if you add that kind of tension to something, it also ratchets at the movie where you're like, how is Stallone going to get one over on this guy? Like that also makes it when the, when the villain, that's why Day of the Jackal so amazing. Like how is this dumpy French inspector dude going to stop the Jackal who is sleek and knows hand to hand and is eight steps ahead of everyone? You're like, there's no way. This guy's going to, and then he does, and it, it just ratchets up the tension. No, I love uh, those mid-80s. I, I, we sound old talking about how good films were back in the day. But, uh, <laughs> I like the good story. Whatever happened to Catherine Hepburn? 
But it's like, if you look at Die Hard, and, and we're going to get into your big stand-up tour, just the last thing we'll talk about. Uh, okay, good. 80s-wise. Uh, you know, some of those guys, the bad guys, weren't even actors. Like, Alexander Gudinov was a ballet star. I know. But he was great as Carl. He was awesome. <laughs> um, and the other guys were just models. That, that, that just yeah. That was the part. And then Alan Rickman was just, like, maybe the greatest bad guy Oh my God! And that that whole the whole sequence where he tricks McLean into acting like I'm Bill Clay and he does yeah. the uh, American accent that wasn't in the script. He would do an American accent like during lunch and between breaks. And like, oh my God, let's write a scene where he meets him, then he tricks him. They wanted to use that what he was doing, so that was added last minute. And it's one of the best scenes in the movie because you're just sitting there. It's it's the Hitchcock thing: show the audience the bomb, and right. then let the characters walk. You're like, what? He's right there! Like, oh my god, it's so good. Of course, I will admit my favorite diehard character is Ellis, the uh, cocaine. Uh... <laughs> Hart Bochner, a terrific actor. I don't know what. I don't know why it never happened for him. He's also a director. He was really great in a movie called Apartment Zero. Yes. Oh, my God, is he good in that. And speaking of uh, Leah Thompson earlier, Hart, there was a loose sequel, I think, in 1984 to Fast Times at Ridgemont High called The Wildlife. The Wildlife, yep. Which, uh, you know, I would have thought would have done a lot better just because it was yeah. The same, uh, instead of Sean Penn, you had Chris Penn. Uh-huh. <laughs> Art Bochner has the horny cop. Uh, exactly. And uh, a very, this is something not a lot of people know, but has the strip club bouncer was Kevin Peter Hall, who most people might be like, who the hell is that? Uh, the actual predator. So yep. uh, I don't mean Harvey Weinstein. I mean the... <laughs> <laughs> well, if you watch the original Fast Times at Richmond High, um, my friend comedian Doug Benson is one of the high schoolers in the background in the mall scene. He's hanging out. Really? I see. There he is. That's, that's why there we he is. It. Yeah, uh, exactly. They're all there. So, And a very young Nicolas Cage. Very uh, young, who at the time, Nicolas Coppola. <laughs> standing in line, I think, for uh, Standing in line. Working the, uh, working the burger thing. Yes. Uh, all right. Now, I know we have just a few minutes. Okay, really quick. Sorry. No, no, not this really. great. Sorry. I love this, man. Just yakking about movies. I love it. I was so scared. I'm not going to lie. About five minutes before, I'm like, Jesus Christ, where do, where do I start with this? I mean, like, like this guy's done a lot. Uh, you know, most of my guests, there's about three things we could talk about. So, <laughs> uh, you're getting back into stand-up full-time. Yes. Um, you have a huge tour that starts off uh, September 10th and goes well into next year. Yeah. Um, how do you go about formulating a new hour? Because you you could just cheat. I mean, you could just do a greatest hits package, and and people would be satisfied with that. You're not doing that. I'm going to drop a name right now. Uh, years ago, I was talking to Chris Rock, and he said, "If you put out a special or an album, and then when you go on tour after it comes out, and you do that special or album, the audience will be very happy, but they'll never come see you again because they'll go, that's what he does. If you put out a special or an album." And then you go tour on that and you do an all new material. They are your fans for life. Right. So 
I always want to do a completely brand new hour. I never want to do a best of. And what one of the ways I do it, you're looking at it. I I'm doing. I did last night and tonight in Irvine at the Irvine Improv, just out in front, as my friend calls it, out in front of the potato skins. <laughs> just you know, working. You just working the material. Um, unfortunately, I don't have the discipline to sit and write jokes. I have I write concepts down and then I kind of work them out on stage, and that's how it kind of comes together. So. I'm starting to do you – know, I do the Largo regularly. I'm, I'm getting back into doing the store, the factory, the improv in, in Hollywood, although a lot of times in L.A., if I have an early call time, I'm such an old man. I'm like I need to be in bed by 930 if I have to be on set at 6. So there's nights that I don't go out as much as I used to or I ask to go on early because I'm just – again, I'm just old. Right now, I have these two nights to just really – and now I have like the rest of the day in the hotel room just to write and think, just write down concepts and stuff. But it just it, – it really – there's nothing romantic about it. It's just doing it over and over again until you get it where it needs to be and that's how I do it. Like, do you, like the other night I was at Guns N' Roses and uh, oh. I went by myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, just to, like we talked about earlier, just to see the, the visual spectacle. And Yeah, yeah. They, I'll, I'll give them this. They give you your money's worth. But yeah, that's what I hear, yeah. There was, uh, you know, they start doing Welcome to the Jungle and, and Axel does his, uh, do you know where you are? <laughs> jungle, baby. And the guy next to me goes, well, we are in Compton. And uh, <laughs> I know it's like, bro, read the room. Yeah, what are you doing? Like, do you ever get material like that where it's just a random, you're at a store, you're, you, oh, you see something? Yeah. And you know, as a comedian, what that's like when you're like, oh, I just got handed something. Like, that. there we go. I just got a bit handed to me. You know, that's happened where something, someone will say something or you'll just see an event go down and you're like, either I can describe this event and it's funny as it is, and I, or I can use it to expand on other things about humanity or about life when that happens. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the reasons I just did a showcase for just for laughs for the CW was me and a bunch of comedians and beforehand in the week leading up, they're like, could you not talk about the quarantine and COVID and like, just, you know, and every comedian went up there and talked. Cause they're like, what do they think we've been doing this last year and a half? We're not going to talk about our, splendiferous, you know, parasailing adventures. We've been inside going crazy. That's all we had to talk about. We all made it funny, but you have to talk about whatever is actually happening to you or what you're reacting to. So it's going to be interesting how the next crop of comedy specials is affected by what we just went through and what we're about, and also quite frankly, what we're about to go through again. I don't want to be a bummer, but it feels like another shutdown is happening. There was all these venues that I'm doing have been really cool about absolutely proof of vaccination, masks, negative tests, except for the four that I have in Florida in December. And I'm probably going to have to cancel them because not only will they not do it, they're aggressively like, you will be fined. We will fine you if you like it. I don't know what is going on down there, but I'm like, I can't go touring in a, in a midsummer death cult right now. Like I have to, I'm going to have this. And I love Florida. I love doing Florida. And I'm going to have to lose four of my dates because of it. Well, I'll pick them up if you want me to. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah. one>. <laughs> you want to go down into the plague pits? Go right ahead. Hey, at 52, uh, I've got nothing to lose. So, <laughs> um, so Do you find playing theaters like, you know, Largo is a smaller venue. It's a legendary venue. Uh, and, and even like the clubs mm-hmm. in L.A. aren't 
gigantic. I mean, the comedy store is a big room, the main room specifically. Do you yeah. Uh, yeah. deliver the jokes differently if you're, say, doing it at Largo or like September 10th, you'll be at the Chevalier Theater? Do, do you make adjustments to the size of the room? Yeah, I mean, you do have to, I don't want to say embiggen yourself, but there's there's more of a, like this. I, the next special that I shoot, I want to do it in a very small venue. I, I was looking at my specials, and a lot of them, I'm, I'm like in this stance, like kind of, you know, sending it up into the rafters. And some of my best sets happen in these tiny, my set last night at the Irvine Improv was so loose and intimate and like, real like actually looking at people and talking with them it felt like so immediate and i want to try to find a way to capture that some people have but really really capture that on film you know in a special so um but yeah you absolutely you have to and and, you know that happens with bands too i remember seeing um uh, the yeah yeah yeahs and they were at the Greek theater and they had just they were opening for the white stripes and they had just broken through but they hadn't made the adjustment from small club band that destroys a small club to now I'm in the Greek theater they hadn't I mean, I've heard since then they have made that leap but it was interesting to see that transition of like oh no you got to project it out more you can't send it down into the right into the front row and then have it seep to the room that way it's a it's just a different energy it's a different delivery system. Well, do you find last question? And uh, before okay. I ask you this, first of all, thank you very much for doing this. Um, Dude, thanks for this. Was great. I man, we're just talk talk about action movies for two hours. It was awesome. Oh, we. Have, I, I got to come back. We'll talk about more stuff. Hopefully, we'll do a live podcast where we break down the script of Cobra, which was, and I know you know this, mm-hmm. the original uh, script of Beverly Hills Cop. And, uh, yep, and he well, he went. He was doing Beverly Hills Cop. He wanted to add all this crazy violence. And they went, uh, no. So then he went fine, and he took it and made Cobra. And yeah, you mentioned that in one of your um, messages to me. I've heard this too. There's like a whole other one hour sequence of the biker gang just decimating that town, and it's like this one of the most violent sequences put to film, and they cut all of it out. Yes, there. You think uh, you know? I know a lot of celebrities such as yourself and and Rob Schneider and and other people of that ilk, you'd think I'd say, hey, can you help get me on Conan or can you help get me on maybe a showcase for JFL? I've literally asked every celebrity I know, not for any help in that regard, I want that three-hour cut of Cobra. I don't care who has to make it. Dude, I want it too. I want it. Someone put that out. Criterion, put it out. I mean, Canon Films, let's get Golden Globus oh if they're still alive uh, and make it happen. Um, but uh, in regards to your stand-up, because I saw this with Rob Schneider a lot, where he's been in so many iconic films and, and characters from SNL, and you're in that same boat of having done so many roles that you're known for. Do you find it tough sometimes in your stand-up that people want to hear you do an impression or they want to hear you like talk about the Seinfeld role or, you know, you want to give them what they want, but you also want to do your stand up. Yeah. I mean, I want to try to do this. I mean, I, I'm very gentle about like, I don't know when, when you, I've had, I've been on stage and someone was like, do King of Queens. I'm like, I don't know what that means. I, <laughs> I do, do dialogue from the show. I don't know what to tell you. Like I just was, 
<clears throat> it was a hired actor. They it was they were great scripts to read, but I don't know what I can deliver to you right now. Give me five minutes, and I think you'll like my material. So I'm very lucky in that you know I I don't really have any catchphrases that people know or what, what's that really. I mean, I remember you know Dave Chappelle walked out of a show because of that. People kept screaming, um, you know, going yeah, and you know I'm Rick James, bitch, and he couldn't get his <laughs> material out. So I'm very very fortunate that that hasn't happened to me yet. Oh, I remember uh, the first uh, time I ever worked with uh, Rob, like literally the whole crowd was yelling, you can do it, you can do it. Oh, God. The second show I had to make the announcement of, please, nobody <laughs> can do it. Like, he'll do it, but just yeah. let him off. First, first off, he can do it. <laughs> and then, and, and second off, let him do it. Yes, at, when he wants to. Uh, so, uh Patton, I can't thank you enough. Um, once again, you guys listening, uh, Who's Ready to Laugh? Uh, starts September 10th at the Chevalier Theater. You'll be playing, ironically, on my birthday, September 17th, the Kennedy Center. Yes! And my aunt is Ethel Kennedy, so uh, oh. maybe I could open for you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't afford your airfare right now. Sorry. Maybe, uh, <laughs> buy my own ticket for that gig. Uh, I'm just um, Earl, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, man. No, I, I'm going to sound sappy when I say this. Uh, I appreciate you being as nice as you are. Uh, oh, man. Um, uh, you're just a good person. I, like you could be a total dick. Pardon my language. <laughs> no, you could. I mean, wait a minute. I could. I didn't yeah, know. Oh uh, shit! What am I doing? What's coming next? Pat Oswalt presents roast battle. Uh, <laughs> so I appreciate you being you. You didn't have to do this interview. I know your uh, your work schedule is insane, and you probably would have rather watched Jay Tapper uh, talk about uh, <laughs> Jay Tapper. <laughs> Fox News being maniacs, but uh, <laughs> this has been really fun. I don't think I asked you one question I planned on. So uh, that was one of the best interviews I've ever done. That was so much fun. That was so much fun, dude. Thank you. Not that you need to plug anything. I think you're doing oh. okay. But uh, would you like fans to follow you on Twitter or Instagram? <laughs> Why not? Um, at Pat and Oswald on both Twitter and Instagram, you'll get all the show updates, the season four of AP Bio coming out, all this other stuff that's on the way. You'll be the first to know. Well, you'll be the first if you check my thing every five minutes when I post things. <laughs> and uh, please follow Pat. And he's like literally one of the good ones in this business. And, uh, you know, hopefully he'll come back uh, for more, as Rat would say. And we'll talk about the. Uh, We'll do a table read, maybe. Uh, you've got the connections. We'll get Jeff Speakman, and we'll do a live table read of The Perfect Weapon. Oh, God damn it. it well, I mean, the three-hour script for Cobra must be out there. That I could try to track down. I'm telling I you. I could get oh. Brian E. Thompson to reprise his role as the Night Slasher. Uh, we might... Maybe you can get Stallone. I, I don't know if you know him or not. You know, he might do it. I, I've never, I've never got to meet him, but I would love to meet him. His, his history. And also, by the way, before we go, didn't it feel like there was a way bigger relationship between the axe guy? What's name again? Brian. Brian E. Thompson, who and, has the distinction of being the first person killed in Terminator. Uh, right. That's right. Um, but it feels like there was a whole other subplot, a deeper story about him and that lady cop that was clearly obsessed with him. Like, yes. 
Are they lovers or is she like his mom? Or it, it was something very weird that they only touch on and it felt like all that stuff got cut out. Well, there's some weird – now, I have no eye for editing, but even I picked up upon a few scenes with him where he's sharpening the knife and then it just cuts away. Like, it seemed, Yeah. It just seemed like, oh, I think there was more to this scene, but uh, apparently Stallone was like, this is going to be about me. He's in a yeah. minimum. Uh, but he was so effective, uh, you know, because he's yeah. got a unique jawline uh, – I think when he, face looks on, incredible. when he came on, he's he one of those guys. Like, yeah. He's one of those guys where you're like, Oh yeah, he's going to be, he'll make movies forever. Cause look how he looks like he looks, he just looks great to photograph. Well, you know? yeah, he told me he had a, not a skin disease, but uh, something as a child robbed his uh, elasticity and his collagen in his face. So oh. that's what gave him the unique, uh, you know, almost sunken in cheeks. Uh, yeah. But still a good looking guy. Like oddly. I know. he. I think he looks amazing. And you can currently see him in a New York state lottery commercial. You know, it's uh non sag, but you know, we, we won't get into that industry. Okay. <laughs> I'm just fascinated by someone like him who could be a, a big eighties villain. And then now in 2021, he's got to get a, a commercial. Like it's got to not? Hey, it happens. It dude, there, there is no, we, we pick the one business where it's not the steady thing every day. The ups and downs are crazy. We chose this. You gotta embrace it. Oh, I mean, right now I would do a extra and a Mentos commercial if it was offered to me. <laughs> Guys, this I had is a friend who was dating I had a friend back in the 90s who was dating this very big actress, and she was offered a million dollars for an Eminem commercial. And she said, uh, I'm not going to be a show for a candy company. She turned it down. That's when I knew we had to break up because I would shove a bowl of Eminems in my ass for $500. Dude, don't try to underbid me, okay? I will. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic, but I was, uh, my mom's last name is Weinman, so I'm down to undercut people there you go uh, man inappropriate well, earl this thanks been, for having me on oh the honor's been all mine i don't want to lay it on too thick but uh please follow pat oswalt uh where, where can they uh what are your handles on twitter and instagram at pat oswalt twitter and instagram pat oswalt.com go to the website tour dates everything i mean the tickets are almost all gone for all shows so please get them now and i know yes. that's uh, usually that. Well, we're adding a second shows to, to some places that they all sold out. Uh, but yeah, the tickets are going very, very quickly. Yeah, late show has been added for the Kennedy Center show, and I've <laughs> never not been to that venue. It, it's an amazing venue. And, oh, uh, God, yeah. You know, those Florida dates are on hold right now. Come on, DeSantis, get, get it together. <sighs> Please, I want to go. I love Florida. All right. want to get political, anyway. but just mask up. You, uh, <laughs> it's not that hard. You, you can see right. through a mask. Uh, yes, damn it. Uh, Pat Oswald, you're the best. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Earl. Thank you.